Hello, listeners. I'm Hilary Trudell, and this is The Yarn. Thanks for joining us. The Yarn uses the power of story to amplify voices, build understanding, and create a space for human connection. We currently operate out of Little Rock, Arkansas, and all of the stories you're about to hear were recorded live. Our shows are theme-based and center on topics that come straight from our community. In this episode, we're featuring stories from our live storytelling event, Stray Love, which was performed live at South on Main on February 11, 2020, in beautiful downtown Little Rock. Stray Love was done in partnership with Rock City Rescue and was sponsored by Hounds Lounge. This will be the second of a three-part series. Let's dive in. Ryan McGinney is a writer and photographer living in Little Rock, Arkansas. A native of Kansas, Ryan served in the U.S. Marine Corps before completing degrees in government and journalism. He's lived in Arkansas since 2009, where he has written about rural issues and agriculture. Ryan is also a woodworker and an ultra runner. Here he is from the Yarn Stage. There was a time when I was young and in love with a woman who just needed some cats in her life. Uh, we had married in the summer of 1999 after having met in a singles periodical, corresponded for about two years, and spent fewer than 30 days in each other's presence. Uh, despite this general lifestyle, I had some real caution about getting cats. Um, a couple reasons. Uh, one, I am reasonably allergic to dander and didn't really fancy a house full of cat hair. Uh, the other thing is, I hadn't really had a pet since I was about eight years old, and it had gone poorly. Uh, I don't want to get real lost on this one, but suffice it to say that between an eight-year-old who doesn't know shit about raising dogs and two parents who are real checked out, uh, pretty soon you're just going to have a dog that barks all the time and tries to bite everyone, and that is how you end up taking a pretty short drive to whatever the opposite of a no-kill shelter was in 1983. Uh, but cats are adorable, right? So uh, my wife set to the uh, grindstone of the internet and arrived at a compromise, the hairless cat. Now, uh, as it turns out, there is such a thing I've since come to know as a Sphinx Rescue Society. But typically, if you're buying a Sphinx cat, you're buying it from a breeder, okay? You're not getting it out of the back of a pickup truck next to a basket of peaches in Yaleville, Arkansas, okay? And if you're gonna go to a breeder, you might as well go big. So we drove to New Orleans, Louisiana, and we bought two 13-week-old sisters from the same litter, named them Flannery and Sephora. Uh, we packed them in little carriers and set on our way back to our home in Tampa, Florida. Uh, a few hours into the drive, the sedatives wore off, and the cats began caterwauling, literally caterwauling. And we made our first mistake as new parents. We thought, let's let them out of their little carriers, and that will chill them out. Uh, so immediately, one of them gets on the dashboard right above the steering wheel, and the other one gets right under the brake pedal. Uh, neither, of this is neither of these are ideal at 70 miles an hour. Uh, but we survived and arrived in Tampa to begin our new life as a happy cat family. Now, you know how most cats, uh, when they're born, they're cute and kiddish and curious, and then they turn six months old and they don't give a shit about anything for the rest of their lives? Sphinx cats are not like that. They are engaging and personable and fun. They're pretty much their entire lifespan. And these two were delightful. Uh, our house had a real shotgun quality to it, and they would rumble from one end to the other like a herd of tiny elephants. Uh, they had a lot of, um, whatchamacallit, uh, 
Siamese in their lineage, and uh, so they chattered all the time, like they had their own language. It was worrisome. You begin to uh, become concerned about conspiracy and uprisings. Uh, a few months after this happened, uh, the, um, after we adopted the cats, the terrorist attacks of 9-11 happened. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps at the time, so I was just real busy for a couple of years. Uh, real gone, real deployed, real out of the country. Uh, uh, just two years after that, though, my second enlistment came to an end. Uh, my wife at the time was real sick of being a military spouse and pretty tired of Florida. Uh, I had somehow made it seven years, still had all my parts, uh, most of my marbles, and uh, just decided not to push my luck anymore. So I cashed in my chips, went to college, finished one degree, then another. We ended up back in Kansas, uh, where we uh, had both grown up. Now, you may remember, once upon a time, you could just get a liberal arts degree in any old thing, and pretty quick after graduation, anybody would hire you and just train you what they needed to do anyway. And just like that, you were in the middle class. Well, all of that magical bullshit came to an end around 2008, um, about a year before I finished my degree in journalism. Uh, so I was as pleased as punch to get offered a reporting job in Northwest Arkansas, which was about a three-hour drive from Lawrence, where we were living at the time. Now, my wife was of two minds about this. One, newspaper jobs have always been mercurial, and there was no sense in her leaving her university job uh, until I really stabilized. On the other hand, this would definitely get me out of her house which I think she had kind of come to long for uh, since I had uh, left the military. Uh, as it turns out, what was keeping us together that whole time was me just being gone a lot. Um, I, I should mention here, now, my own father has been married six times. Six times. And you know how we're all determined not to become our parents? So there was this definite aspect of like, I will make this marriage work. Uh, nevertheless, uh, also, you know, we just had the kittens to think of, right? There, there are kids involved. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we separated and then divorced, but we did it amicably, so amicably, in fact, uh, that we actually negotiated joint shared custody of the cats. It's written into the divorce decree. So like every three months, I would drive up there, pick up the girls. I paid kitty support. I would, I would introduce them to new women I was dating. Uh, not too soon, though, right? Like you can't, go, you can't go introducing your kids to everybody you meet off Tinder, right? That's not, that's not healthy for anyone involved. But I will tell you, um, one thing that's a good test for relationship is the bathing process, the cat bathing process, okay? Because hairless cats, if you don't bathe them every week, pretty soon you just have two brown cats. Uh, so it goes something like stalk, capture, swaddle, wipe their little face, clip their nails, clean out their ears, and then release and like defend yourself, and then you gotta do it again, because there's another one who's been watching, right? <laughs> this is not for like the thin-skinned or profuse bleeders, so that weeded out a lot of ladies. It was pretty good. Um, so around 2013, I got a call, and it was from my ex-wife with a dilemma. Uh, Flannery had developed bladder stones. Now, a bladder stone is not an emergency, but if a piece of that stone breaks off and becomes lodged in her urethra, then you have a blocked cat, and that is an emergency. And the vet was just saying, like, you need this surgery or you need euthanasia, because this is not endurable. And, uh, you know, as someone who had never grown up with pets, I had laughed at stories of people who paid real money for surgery for domesticated cats. I mean, this is not a working animal. What kind of investment is that? Um, but uh, I had, just having these cats had really changed me. Like, there's something about the repeated process of pouring all your affection into an animal that you're maybe getting 10% 10, 10 return on that really, like, builds that up in you. 
you know? Like, they don't understand what they're doing to your possessions and your house and your, and your bank account and your time schedule. And cats especially do not give a shit. They don't care. But uh, you learn to love them for the love they can give back, whatever, whatever the return is, right? And so I just, you know, I like, how much money are we talking about here? She said $1,000. And I didn't even blink. I said, do it. I'll send you half. And it was successful. They went on to live their little cat lives. Uh, shortly after that, uh, I moved to Little Rock following a woman who would become my second wife. She loves it when I introduce her that way. It's great. Try it sometime. Um, but uh, that kind of doubled the drive time between Lawrence. And by this time, the cats were like 15. And that's not fair. Like, you don't uproot a 15-year-old cat every three months. So uh, that was really kind of the last I saw him for a long time. And then... Last October, I got a call, well, a text message, because like, we're at that part in the, point in the relationship with the ex. Um, and she said, it's, it's just time. Like those cats were closing in on 19 years old. Um, Sapporo was riddled with tumors. Flannery barely had the energy to glare anymore. And uh, you know, when they were healthiest, they're, they're healthiest, they weighed nine pounds and then 10. Uh, but like now they weighed six pounds and then five and then less. So on their last day, uh, Sapporo had a little last bit of chicken. Flannery slept through breakfast, and uh, off they went. Those girls were born to the same litter. They spent their entire lives together, almost 20 years. They were cared for by a very small number of humans, and they went out together. We should all be that lucky. Thank you. Rosalind Elliott is a professional writer who works for the Central Arkansas Library System. She has performed her poetry on stage with the Arkansas Symphony Orchestra and has a passion for Shakespeare. Rosalind has also appeared in the 2020 Akansa 10-Minute Play Showcase. Rosalind is a lifelong animal and nature lover who grew up singing to horses and riding bareback. She still searches for unicorns while hiking. Here's Rosalind from the Yarn Stage. I found my dog, Snow, right after I realized I was going to prison for 10 years. Not a literal prison, but existential prison enough, as there was no hope for my marriage. But I couldn't leave until my then five-year-old daughter was much older. So I would be living in a lonely house with a silenced soul and a man I could not talk to in separate bedrooms for the next 10 years. My romantic life was over at the age of 34. And who knew if I would ever find another partner on the far and unknowable side of this gray and bleak landscape I was about to walk alone. We lived in New Mexico at the time where I had relocated with him as he built his career. The day of that epiphany was perhaps the worst day of my life. I sat in the driveway and sobbed, clutching the steering wheel after a useless marriage counseling session. We were radically incompatible and had already been married for seven torturous years. Not long before that epiphany in the driveway and the clanging shut of the prison door in my mind, both my cat and our family dog had passed away. My grief for my cat was so intense that there was no way I could adopt another cat, but 
I did want another dog, and I knew the dog I wanted. She would be a dark, short-haired dog who looked like a wolf. I liked my dogs like I liked my ideal lover. Beautiful, a touch of poetry in the soul, maybe a little melancholy, nonconformist, and utterly faithful. But unlike my ideal man, I could find my ideal dog on Craigslist. And there she was. I called the number for this four-year-old, dark, short-haired dog at, offered for a private home out of adoption. Soon I was there with this high-strung, vibrating owner who was close to tears the entire time. Why are you giving Snow away? I asked. We didn't know she would get so big, she said, looking away and shifting in her chair. And she... She, we had to keep her in the backyard, and then we adopted this Pomeranian to keep inside, and it made Snow sad. You don't say, I thought. Is there any worse torture for a pack animal than being kept in the backyard while another dog makes love to your family in your house? I petted the dog who was delighting in her brief time in the house and rolling on her back to show her vulnerable belly to the world. You may have figured out by now that her name was Snow, but she was black. Her nervous owner told me that the name was a joke and implored me to keep it if I adopted her. I said I would, and I said I did want to adopt her, which made the owner start weeping in earnest. Will you take her now, she said. I think I should, I replied gently. But... Why don't you come over to my house tomorrow night and you'll see what a lovely home she has and that she's truly hit the dog jackpot and I think you'll feel a lot better. I brought Snow home in my lap. She looked out the window and whined but tucked into the curve of my body and took comfort. The next evening, as agreed, the owner came over. Snow had been in my house for 24 hours, petted and loved. I sat down on the couch in the living room the owner sat down on the other couch, 10 feet away. Snow looked at us for a moment. <laughs> then she lay down at my feet. <laughs> the owner said, Snow, her eyes wide. Then she said, I guess we were just holding you till your real owner came along. From the moment Snow came to live with me, I had to explain her name to everyone she met. Her, a friend suggested that her name should really be Shadow because she never left my side. She, she, her beauty was stunning. Imagine the Egyptian god Anubis with glistening dark jackal head, elegant, tall, rounded ears, long, wild nose. She had been drawn in Egyptian art thousands of times before she ever took this mortal form. The myth-haunted spirit hound... A prosaic male friend of mine whose family owned a chubby and domestic miniature schnauzer once looked at her lying at my feet, her head raised in museum silhouette, and murmured, surprised by his own senses, Snow is a beautiful dog. She didn't bark much, and when she did, it was muffled and subtle. Even more curiously, when she got excited by this rolling toy truck, she would make a strange noise that sounded like, Woo, 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 woo. When I mentioned this noise to the vet on her first visit, he took a long look, taking in her head, her ears, the single wrinkle on her brow. 
I think she's a lab Basenji mix, he said. Basenji. Suddenly, her Egyptian presence was more than my dreaming. Treasured by pharaohs, Basenjis are one of the world's oldest breeds and closer to wild canids than any other. For this reason, full-blooded Basenjis are a specialist dog, aloof, semi-wild, and hard to train. But I had hit the dog jackpot in snow because the lab blood had blended with the Egyptian to make her as black as Anubis and as kind and gentle as Hathor, the goddess of love and motherhood. For a decade, snow went with me. The road of my dead marriage was as grueling as I expected, despite the joy of raising my daughter. It grew harder when five years down, I moved to Arkansas, leaving my female friends behind in New Mexico. The isolation was total. Only teaching drama at a local school kept me engaged and alive through my students. But the lonely silence was still there, deep down waiting for me. And it took me every time I walked back into the house. Still, snow was there in the house walking with me literally every step of the way. She, in, at night in my separate bedroom, she would lie next to the bed. I could never get her to share the bed because her, her gentle nature thought that was unseemly. But when I hung my arm down over the edge, I could touch her fur. She was so close. In 2017, my daughter and I moved out. In 2018, the divorce was final and the thousands of steps along that road had finally led to the far side and freedom. By 2019, Snow had a dusting of white around her muzzle and limped painfully where she had once bounded four feet off the ground through the grass. Her eyes had blued with age, her hearing had dimmed. I diapered her tenderly for the last six months of her time with me. Her last vet was as taken with her as I was, charmed by her sweetness and her depth of spirit. In the end, I lay on the floor with her in the vet's office. Her head pillowed on my arm and summoned every moment of joy she had ever brought me so I could send her off to her own freedom with the full and strong heart she deserved. You're a good dog, I told her again and again, stroking her as her eyes closed for the last time. She was truly well-named, I realize now, as the fallen snow that gentles the bleakness of winter. She softened the more agonizing edges of my life for 10 years. The bitter cold of that journey was blanketed by her presence as she fell on the empty spaces and filled them with her faithfulness. The craggy black branches that lined that road were covered by the soft powder of her love for me. Our next storyteller is Sasha McBain. 
Sasha learned the power of storytelling as a child growing up in the Scottish Highlands, where stories connected her community to their past, present, and future. As she grew up, she continued to use storytelling to connect with herself and those around her. Sasha particularly loves stories that highlight unspoken shared truths and that show listeners they are not alone, even in their worst moments. Here's Sasha from the Yarn Stage. A few months before adopting my dog, I had a dream about an orca beached on a rocky coastline. In the dream, an Australian cattle dog emerged from the water and began eating the fat of the orca. Now, you don't have to be a psychologist to draw meaning from this dream, although I am one, so let me break it down for you. I had just finished up my graduate training and I was feeling inactive, lethargic, and at times apathetic. I needed something to set fire to all of my stuck emotions and inertia. A cattle dog could do the trick. My partner Travis had been implanting the idea of adopting a dog for a few years. I always had a reasonable excuse not to. We loved to travel and I didn't want the commitment. I could hear my Scottish father's voice in my head. Oh, dogs are like a ball and chain. <laughs> but after this dream, I couldn't help but think about cattle dogs. I'd had one growing up, and so I was familiar with the breed, and I knew they were active, and I knew they were smart. We started the process of visiting shelters and endless scrolling on Pet Finder until one fateful Saturday, we came across Terry, a nine-month-old Australian cattle dog, a red healer. She had just arrived at the shelter and had a freshly shaved pink belly, and she jumped in our laps and licked our faces, and we knew to be taking her home that day. As we were leaving, excitedly creating all of our expectations of pet ownership, sitting on a restaurant patio, drinking a beer, dog at our side, meeting fellow dog owner friends, we heard a call. Hey, did you adopt that dog? It was one of the volunteers. Yes, we did, beaming with pride. Oh, that one's not good with other dogs. She doesn't like them or they don't like her. Bye now. <laughs> this is where the real story begins. We never thought to consider what else we didn't know about our new family member and moved on to more important decisions like what we were going to rename her. We settled on Penny for her copper red fur. She settled in nicely when you don't account for the separation anxiety, incessant barking at every noise, and the leash aggression. That must have been what the volunteer meant about not getting along with other dogs. But we loved her nonetheless, and we wanted to do right by her given the life that she had had before she met us. We learned about the circumstances of Penny's life before us in an unusual way. That first Monday back at work, I showed all my coworkers photos of my new dog, and my supervisor was oddly quiet. She later came to my office and said she wasn't sure if she should tell me this, but she thought that Penny was actually a missing dog. Sure enough, she held up her phone and Penny was prominently featured in a lost dog ad and her name was Paprika. You can imagine my horror that I had just adopted somebody's missing dog and that her name was Paprika. I immediately called, <laughs> I immediately called Travis who immediately called the contact number, and within a few minutes, he had called me back to tell me this tale. 
Apparently, Penny had originally been found wandering on open land, was picked up by the pound, rescued by a shelter organization, placed with a foster family, whom she quickly absconded from while chasing a squirrel, and ended up right back at the animal village. Talk about recidivism, people. <laughs> um, I Hold on one second. <laughs> Brief intermission. Sorry, I'm forgetting my spot. Um, so... I have to come clean that I just forgot my story and um, that I had some second thoughts as I was waiting for Travis to call me back. Um, so that, that first weekend with Penny had been difficult and I thought maybe it's not too late to give her back. Maybe this pea-stained rug nightmare can end. This must be a sign. But the more I thought about it, the more difficult it seemed to give Penny up. When we were given the option to keep her, we said yes. Things got worse before they got better. Did you know that cattle dogs require two hours of exercise a day? Yeah, two hours a day. Things were not going well. Without cattle around, she decided to nip our heels and bark in our faces to play like the doggy version of Bill Belichick. I took her to the dog park to exert some of her energy. You know what she did? She barked in the faces of all the other dogs, barreled through the park, ran into a woman's legs, and knocked her on her behind. <laughs> Needless to say, we didn't spend much more time at the dog park. Now, as a psychologist, I talk to people a lot about boundaries and assertiveness and facing their fears. I didn't do any of that with Penny, and I was being a total hypocrite, avoiding walks, which only made things worse with her pent-up energy, and not giving her the structure and boundaries that she needed to be her best self. Eventually, I had to face those uncomfortable feelings for both of our sakes. That meant exposing myself to a lot of judgment when Penny would act out in public, and learning to be calm, even when I'm screaming inside. That was two years ago, and Penny has made me a better person, a much more humble person. I had to kill my expectations of pet ownership and find joy in the reality of it, to find joy in the reality of our messy and imperfect lives. Actually, her antics are some of my favorite things about her now. I learned other lessons too, like I'm really good at digesting embarrassment now, and I can project no like a pro. As for the two hours of exercise a day, thanks, Hound's Lounge. <laughs> that Hound's Lounge hangover, am I right? <laughs> but seriously, we still have our moments, but we're doing pretty good. Um, she's so excited when I come in the door, no matter what my mood is. And I am filled with so much love when she gently rests her chin on my leg as we fall asleep at night. It makes all of the messiness worth it. There's no beers on the patio, and I don't have the luxury of lethargy anymore. But I mean, look at me. I'm standing on a stage professing my love for my dog. I just hope my next dream is about a wiener dog in Paris. Thank you.
And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Hilary Trudell, and this has been The Yarn Podcast. Before we go, I want to take a moment to thank the many people who make The Yarn possible. This episode of The Yarn was edited by the capable and wonderful Amaya Jones. Special thanks to our business manager, Sarah Brown. Thanks to Julianne Dunn, our operations director, who keeps us in line and on track. Jensen Hallett, Jesse Rice, and Laura Creech run our comms team and are fabulous at it. Amy Hopper is our partners manager. Emily Warnsdorfer and Ellie Wheeler not only house manage our shows, but bring their artistic talents to all the windows that our venue owners will allow painting. Kelsey Stimak was the stage manager for the show. Laura Creech is our website manager and designer. Stacy Cox takes photos. The yarn would not be possible, though, without the brave Arkansans sharing their stories with us. So special thanks to Ryan, Rosalind, and Sasha. This show was sponsored by Hounds Lounge and done in partnership with Rock City Rescue. And finally, thanks to South on Main for hosting the show. You can find more on the yarn at www.theyarnstorytelling.com and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have a podcast on the Big Rock Switchboard produced by the fabulous Whit Behringer. Lastly, we'd love to hear from you. You are our community and we want to make sure we represent what matters to you on our stage. Send us your suggestions for upcoming shows and comments about this show to info at theyarnstorytelling.com. Remember, at The Yarn, we believe in the power of story. Share yours with us at theyarnstorytelling.com. Everyone's got a story. What's yours?